Greetings from American Exception. At long last, and since we just spoke a little more about Indonesia in the last episode, I figured it was time to finally release the interviews that I did with Greg Polgrain many months ago. Greg Polgrain teaches history at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. He is the author of The Genesis of Konfrontasi, Malaysia, Brunei, and Indonesia, 1945-1965, The Incubus of Intervention, Conflicting Indonesia Strategies of John F. Kennedy and Alan Dulles, as well as the more recent JFK versus Alan Dulles, Battleground Indonesia. The plan was initially to release these interviews after we were able to finish the podcast and YouTube series with The Culture. Unfortunately, we only made it about halfway or two-thirds of the way through before Haley left the culture. Regardless, something went wrong with the second set of videos, those covering the JFK years. As a result, my second PowerPoint presentation that I spent many hours on has yet to be used in a public forum. The series had made it all the way from the 1930s and the discovery of the Grassberg in West Papua through the presidency of John Kennedy. I do plan to return to this and do some other video version for the episodes that got bungled as well as a new presentation for the LBJ years, which includes the genocidal campaign of 1965. But for now, we're going to get these Polgrain interviews out with apologies to all those who have been patiently waiting for more Indonesia material. On top of his monumental work on Indonesia, Greg is a great guy. After these interviews were recorded, months afterwards really, I got to spend a day with him when he came to the U.S. to visit his son. He's a fascinating individual with a wealth of knowledge and an incomparable amount of experiences traveling the world to produce all this research. In this first of two parts, we talk about the Indonesia case up through the Eisenhower administration. Professor, it's great to be here with you. Thank you. So your book, JFK versus Alan Dulles, Battleground Indonesia, I've just finished reading it. I'd read your earlier book and I'd heard interviews with you on Black Op Radio elsewhere. And I know that Jim DiGenio and Oliver Stone, they both really appreciate this work and they wrote the introduction and the and the afterword for it. It covers so much history uh, during a really crucial time period. And it's amazing how much it's not considered a, a major part of the Cold War and doesn't even really register with Americans the same way Vietnam does. But you start off in the 30s. And what happens in the 1930s in Indonesia that makes it such a, a uh, important point in the global conflict over resources and, and global politics and all that? In the 30s, people realize, well, don't realize that Alan Dulles, who <laughs> plays a major role throughout the book, of course, was was very much uh, focused on Indonesia already as part of the Standard Oil Empire, you know, part of Sullivan and Cromwell. In fact, I think even in the 20, 1926, I think it was, wasn't it, when he had the big legal uh, confrontation with the uh, the head of the oil in the East Indies. And and Dulles, as a young lawyer, won. 
which is quite surprising, you know. Anyway, uh, that sort of led him in. Standard Oil had always been interested in, since before World War I, that is, had, had been interested in gaining access into this massive Dutch archipelago because it was natural resources. But uh, Dulles was really, I think, in Sullivan and Cromwell, he was like the front desk for Standard Oil. You know? And he was their main operator in in Europe. And I think people tend to forget about that. We always think of Dulles as head of the CIA in the 50s, and we don't seem to go past that or maybe back to his role in World War II, but certainly not much before World War II. So, yeah, I have to start in the 1920s and 30s for that reason. Dulles was a key player. Yeah. Right, because he's not just a intelligence officer who operates on the basis of, you know, the bureaucratic, um, you know, management of intelligence and information. He's he's like an intelligence man yes. for, for oil. Really. Well, that description of him is what we usually, you know, director of central intelligence. We always think of him as, okay, that was head of the CIA, but he was actually head of 10 intelligence agencies, you know, Air Force, National Security, whatever, you know. And as well, on top of that, he had his own group of intelligence agencies starting back in the 1920s, as I showed with Damore and Shield. You know, he had Damore and Shield and Prince Bernard were, were close friends and they, they ran their own business. Uh, well, their own, their own links had their own links, you know. It's Dulles's former friend from the 1930s. Uh, what's his name? He, he, uh, he was the German who set up the war economy for Hitler. I forget his name now, sorry. But he was brought into Indonesia post-war, would you believe? Helmar, Helmar Schacht? Schacht, that's it, yeah. So he had these links and connections going back 50 years, you know, seven, seven, eight presidents he served under. It's remarkable. People underestimate the power and the ability, you know, the Machiavellian ability of Dulles. He was really an extraordinary individual. I'm always impressed with the fact that when he was eight years old, he used to hide behind the curtains when his relatives, you know, uncles and whatever, all in high high level in politics, used to talk about whatever. And he was taking notes behind the curtain and he wrote a book at eight years of age about the Boer War. That That's, <laughs> that's a child prodigy. <laughs> so, yeah, if you think of him just as, Alan Dulles, head of the CIA in the 50s. Wow, that's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? So going, I had to start early, very early in the, in the book and explain what Dulles was, was doing in the 20s and 30s. Really, I mean, he was in intelligence, as I say, working in intelligence before Kennedy was born. So we can see that Kennedy really was the new boy on the block when he became involved in Indonesia. And... And Dulles had actually assisted him into the presidential role. And Nixon, the Republican candidate Nixon, was so outraged, he wrote, he wrote that book complaining about that and never really forgave Dulles. And it's also surprising when Dulles was on his deathbed in the late 68, 69 period when he died, Nixon was about to achieve what he'd always wanted to achieve, achieve presidency, and Dulles said, okay, now it's your turn. 
<laughs> wow. Incredible. Just amazing. That's that's really the culmination of his, yeah, how many years? Was he 80, 70, 70, late 70s, wasn't he? 80, I forget now. But he was uh, wielding power that we just don't see anymore like that and expertise that he doesn't see. We don't see any particular figure in America we could say, oh, he's the equivalent of, you know. He's just a brilliant operator. And I, I'm not saying what he did was correct or right. Yeah, he's got to be one of the great schemers in world history. And when you look at what Standard Oil was doing all throughout the early part of the, you know, let's say after World War One, they were, the U.S. was was selling the oil for Japan's war machine. Um, I mean, they were, it was like something like 70 to 80% of the oil that Japan was using in its conquest of Manchuria uh, and, you know, the, the conflicts with Korea and Taiwan and so on or, or previously like the U S was financing that. And then you mentioned that Dulles had a role in finally cutting that off, which I, which I think happens after the Japanese go into uh, French Indochina, then you get that embargo. And, but up until then they were standard oil was, you know, obviously profiting from the Japanese war machine and they did business with the Nazis as well. And then, um, it's what do you what role do you think the do you think that Dulles's awareness of West Erian West Papuan gold I mean perhaps maybe this is the time to mention that like what what about the company that Dulles set up in like 1936 to uh and then GPM 35 35 and he, he they found the gold in 36 I think is that right and yeah that was extraordinary um I think there are two instances there that I, I think should be mentioned in relation to very early attempts to gain control of the Indies. One is to do with uh, Prince Bernard, where he thought we tried or made moves to help him into the, the role of Viceroy of the Indies. And this is this is just before the period when Hitler invaded Moscow. And it would have, it could have worked because um, so many persons in the Indies at that time were pro-Hitler, which is amazing. I mean, the first thing that happened in the Indies when Hit, when Nazi forces invaded Netherlands was that the authorities in the Indies arrested all the pro-Hitler people, NSB people, four four thousand, four thousand people were arrested and. Um, I read a report from the head of intelligence, wartime intelligence in Australia, saying that they regarded the threat of a coup by this pro-Hitler group in the Indies even more of a threat than the Japanese invasion, which was impending. <laughs> so that tells you how powerful they were. So that was the first effort um, to get to make viceroy to make Prince Bernard viceroy of the Indies. The second was when the war started, there was, Dulles was still thinking of the benefits of the Indies for, for uh, Standard Oil. All the Japanese, like 2000, I call it, I wrote a book, I wrote a, an article for uh, Indonesia magazine, Cornell, about, I call it Love Day. The Love Day, have you, have you heard about Love Day internment camp in Australia? It, it was a big, it was a place for detention, wartime in detention, 
or uh, uh, in the aliens, I suppose. So the 2,000 Japanese who were arrested in the Indies and then sent to Australia, this is straight after Pearl Harbour, they were sent to Australia, uh, and with them the Dutch had sent a big white paper explaining who they were. Well, 800 of them were, were most of the Japanese had gone back to Japan already before the war. 2,000 were left. So they were arrested, deported to Australia, and hundreds and hundreds of them were naval spies. And these spies were interned in a place called Love Day between Melbourne and Adelaide in southern Australia. Six months later, several hundred of them were sent back to the Indies, and these were the same people who organised Indonesian independence during the war, and then straight after the war, Indonesian independence was declared. Two of them, Yoshizumi and Nishijima, were the head two, or the two top Japanese naval spies. They were included, and they they were, one of them had a full report in the Dutch had given the authorities in Australia a full report, but this was just hidden. So the Australian authorities, when they found out, they were angry, but the most, the person who was really the angriest was General Douglas MacArthur. And he refused, he blamed the OSS for this sending back Japanese to the Indies, helping, helping the Japanese during the wartime by sending back their top spies. Amazing. And he refused to let any OSS people anywhere in the area that he was in control in the South Pacific, Southwest Pacific, you know. Dulles hated, I mean, General Douglas MacArthur hated the OSS and the, even the Dutch were concerned about what had happened. They Like, this is treason, basically. This is a wartime crime, wartime huge crime, helping the enemy to that extent. And no one's even mentioned it, you know. No one's even brought it up. But it should be a, some sort of investigation into who precisely who was responsible. Because when I asked Dean Rusk who was responsible, he said, not me, not me. <laughs> now, look, look in the State Department, he said, you know. But Dean Rusk must have had a role. When I interviewed Nishijima, who was one of the two top spies, I interviewed Nishijima in Japan in, 19, in Tokyo in 1983. When I was walking up to his door with a translator, he stuck his head out the door and said, have you spoken with Dean Rusk yet? <laughs> the first words. I mean, he could have, he's a tricky individual and he could have been doing that deliberately, but but it does indicate Dean Rusk was involved in the transfer of those Japanese spies back to the Indies. I mean, Nishijima wrote, helped Sukarno write the Proclamation of Independence. That's how important he was. He was later described as the godfather of Indonesia in the 1950s. He was responsible for the oil, getting oil from Indonesia back to Japan. The first independent supply of oil Japan ever had through this guy, Nishijima. Brilliant man. But I felt during the interview, he had, I had three interviews, I felt as though it was a bit like, he made me feel a bit like a wartime interrogation, you know. It, it, to start off with, it was, well, it, we worked out good friends, actually. But there were points when I really put down on the table things that were totally embarrassing to him. And my translator leaned over to me and whispered in my ear and said, please, please, Greg, um, or you can't talk to this important man. He's too important. Please, please show more respect, you know. <laughs> and when she went to the toilet, Mr. Jima leaned over to me and said, look, when you come next time, leave her behind and we can just have a good talk. 
<laughs> so he enjoyed the talk. He enjoyed the challenge, you know. But the, the Japanese tradition was you don't speak to important people like that, accuse them of doing this because I knew I was correct. I had all the documents there, you know, and he knew I was correct too. So it's interesting how culture can intervene in moments of interviews like that, you know. But he relished the idea. He actually walked me back to the railway station and people people have said later, that's extraordinary. You, they usually say goodbye at the door and then say, you know, farewell. But he walked me back with his Javanese hat and his and his slippers, which is Japanese don't wear slippers in the street. Now, they wear shoes, but thongs, things. But he just wore Japanese style and Javanese style things, you know? not Japanese, which is, yeah, he, he was really a, a Japanese, a Javanese in Japan, you know, wrong place, you know. He was so enthralled with Indonesia you know, and he realised I was, he, I think he liked talking with me for that reason. He liked to discuss Indonesia in some depth. You know? So we got along quite well. But he was the second person that Dulles really um, sending back those, sending back those uh, Japanese internees helped Indonesia immensely to gain independence, that is to, to break that link with colonial Holland. You know? So that was the that was the purpose that they were that the OSS and Dulles, you know, pres presumably British Empire, very close to uh, to Dulles, and so they could arrange for that to be done to with a longer view of supplanting the Dutch from in from the East Indies. Yes, they were during the war. They were helping the Japanese because they knew the Japanese American. You know, industrial might was underestimated by the Japanese, basically. But um, they knew the war, even though they were going through a bad time, you know, Midway, and Battle of Midway and whatever, Battle of um, Coral Sea was 50-50. But after that, the Americans seemed to gain the advantage. Right, mm. right. So MacArthur didn't forgive uh, the OSS at all, and Dulles was basically second in charge after Colonel Donovan of the OSS, you know, and he was in New York at that time, and I think that's why Dean Rusk, but that could not have passed the the scrutiny of Dean Rusk at the time. He was one of the top five intelligence officers in the war, and he, he would have been in the War Department. They must, would have to have gone through the War Department, even though it was approved by State Department. It was a repatriation exchange for diplomats for these Japanese, you see, so that's how American diplomats in Japan who were arrested were sent back, and these Japanese were the key in the exchange. Right. So this is happening years after, you know, Dulles is aware. Dulles and a few other people who are, you know, Dutch are aware of this massive discovery of two gold. locations with enormous gold deposits uh, right both mm -hmm. discovered in 30 mm -hmm. in 36 uh, the 36, Erzberg yeah. and the Grassberg that, that that's, that's those right. are the names yeah, yeah. yeah and the person who gave them those two names was Dozy Jean-Jacques Dozy whom I interviewed huh? Freeport later claimed they only found Grassberg years later but they knew about it all the time they uh, they've been deceiving the Indonesian government government for some time and uh, on that issue, they threatened to withdraw all their, you know, their interest from Indonesia unless they got another a good deal on the on exploration. But but they already knew the gold was there. You see, so it's only one. Wasn't it one 
one and a half, two kilometers, or less than two kilometers, the two deposits. You know? And Dozy actually sat down and drew, drew a picture of the, the Grassberg with the Erzberg in the distance. He drew, drew pencil, pencil drawing. Huh? Amazing. And uh, it was an interesting discussion with uh, Jean-Jacques Dozy in, uh, in Den Haag because I went there for a first visit and apparently when I'd left that first time, he got, it was so upset he ran out of the house after I'd left and then went up to his, see his friend. His wife told me this when I came back for the second visit and he wasn't there. <laughs> which I mentioned in the book, I think. And he, she said, what What on earth did you say to my husband? Because he ran out of the house. And I said, oh, where did he go? You know, he went up to see this person. And I, I recognised the name. It was one of the persons who brought in Freeport into the into the whole gold deal, you know. And Freeport have always claimed that they discovered this report, pre, pre-war, pre-World War II report in the library, you know. It's all nonsense, you know. Freeport knew about well the person who who was there. They he brought in Freeport. They knew about it for many years, but so did the Dutch government. So did so did Lunds, the foreign minister Lunds. They knew about the gold as well, and he later confirmed when I interviewed him. He was NATO NATO secretary secretary general in Brussels, and I just wanted that one. The main question I wanted to ask him was. Did he know about the gold, you know, when he when he said, oh, we're going to help the Papuans to independence and so on and so forth, you know. He wanted the gold, of course, but only a s- small group of Dutch people knew about that gold. The Dutch public did not. And how, how exactly, so th- this part could be worth clarifying, I think. How did the Dulles uh, Company, which was a kind of a standard oil front, yeah, which was what, Netherlands, New Guinea, NNGPM, Petroleum Machape. It's a Netherlands New Guinea Petroleum Company. Yeah, it's sixty percent American and forty percent Dutch, and that was the coup. Because how did they do that? Even old man Rockefeller wrote a, a book before World War Two saying, "Thank, thank you very much, Alan." You know, although he didn't mention Alan's name, it was obviously what he was talking about. Thank you very much. You've done so much for Standard Oil. You know. The Middle East, the Far East, all around the world. You know, you're a key player. Thank you very much. So how did he do it? Because Dulles was using uh, a way of convincing the Dutch that uh, to give it, well, he was saying that the Japanese were in, in encroaching on Netherlands, New Guinea in ways that um, the Dutch were unaware of. But I find that difficult to believe because the Dutch must have been aware of it. They just didn't know what the hell to do. The um, the Japanese had the Japanese had um, companies in the middle of uh, New Guinea there, the supposedly timber companies and getting certain oil from trees and things like that. But they were they were landing exploration gear on the northern shoreline, oil exploration gear on the northern shoreline, and, and going off into unknown territory looking for oil. And the Dutch were frenetic. They didn't know what to do. But I read a, read a book <coughs> about three months ago by, it's about, it's the fellow who's in charge of the Smithsonian. 
uh, I forget his name now, yeah? uh, but he was he was appointed by he was an ornithologist sent over to uh, West Papua with a rich family on a boat, 1938, in an expedition, a, a bird expedition, basically. And in that book, in a small chapter, I haven't followed up. It's small in the end, in the beginning of the book, at the end of the first chapter, I think they was they said the boat was moored off Manakwari, which is if you imagine New Guinea like the like a bird shaped island. The back of the head of the bird is where Manakwari was. 1938, this was, and he said it was midnight, and suddenly he woke up. He was sleeping on the boat, and suddenly three Japanese submarines emerged from the water. A cruiser appeared. And 100 Japanese troops charged up the beach in a mock attack on Manakwari. This is amazing. I've never read anything about this before. This is 1938. So this is the sort of pressure that Dulles was was able to bring to bear. I mean, that must have frightened the Dutch no end, you know. They must have heard. Oh, and, and three or four Dornier aeroplanes flew over as well, Japanese, but... Uh, German design, eh? yeah. They flew over Manakwari. I've never heard any report about this ever. It was just included in this book by the OSS about the OSS guy who was in charge of that area in the war. You know? He was actually sent to Australia as well to operate from there during the war period. General Douglas MacArthur, because of that return of the Japanese, wouldn't have him. So he, he never got to Australia. <laughs> General Douglas MacArthur insisted he stay out. And, and not go to Australia. It was OSS. But that that story needs to be, wow, I've got to look at that more closely because to have Japanese running up the beach in a mock attack, it's, it's obviously they're going to take over New Guinea. I read a Dutch report years later that New Guinea really was the goal of the Japanese expansion in World War II. It was going to become New Japan. And it was to get out of the troubles in China. They wanted to take make all of New Guinea, that's East Papua New Guinea and West Papua, Netherlands New Guinea, they wanted to make it New Japan and use it for natural resources. And the rest of Southeast Asia was going to be the market. You know? So it's it's a plan that went, uh, went astray, <laughs> uh, mainly because the competition for that, those natural resources, which Dulles, for one, knew was there, was between Japan and America. In the late 30s, and the person who saw what was going to happen, amazingly enough, was President Sukarno when he was imprisoned by the Dutch in the, in the, in the 30s. He went to trial in 1932-33, and he spoke for two days. He spoke nonstop in his own defence, and he said, there will be a war in the South Pacific, you know, in between Japan and USA because the struggle for natural resources. So that's very, yeah, Sukarno was politically in tune. Eh? I mean, Dulles said the same thing between, after he interviewed Hitler, when Hitler came to power in 1933, he was straight in to interview Hitler, and he wrote a report saying, which ended up in British hands, how I found it, Hitler will start a war and blame Poland. <laughs> so that's pretty good in 1933 to predict, you know, six years ahead. Who told you you can't choose the way you wanna be? Who told me you're gonna burn when you can't burn enough? Do 
the dullest relationship uh you add parts of this with a character who is more significant in terms of the JFK assassination than in Indonesia, but he does have a connection to Indonesia, and that's George de Morenschild. Yes. Um, how far back does Dulles's relationship with George, because George de Morenschild, for people that have been following the JFK series that, that, I've, that we've done here and have, have read different JFK books, he's a very interesting character who seems it seems the relationship of him you know befriending lee oswald is so absurd but but then you you uh brought to light a number of connections with dulles that go back way further i think than most people knew what was the relationship of alan dulles to this character well after the russian revolution basically threatened the baku oil fields the the uh, the Bolsheviks wanted to claim the oil, well, or did claim the oil, but but Rockefeller had made the mistake of misjudging this so-called Russian Revolution. He said, "Oh, it'll be a short-term thing; it'll last six months, and it'll be finished." <laughs> so um, he bought into the Nobel Brothers' share in oil in the Baku oil fields, millions, hundreds and hundreds of millions. You know, it was a very big investment, and then. They were going to lose that investment, so Dulles went over to the Baku oil fields. He was then in in uh, uh, Turkey, based in Constantinople. He he discussed with the head of the oil field, who was Demorenshield's father, and George at that time was ten years old. But that's when he first met George. So when the revolution went ahead, and the father and the son. And the mother actually, but she died. They went back to Poland, and from there, he after a year or two in the cavalry, George went to Belgium to 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 do some study. And I don't have any documentary evidence that Dulles was linking up with De Morenschild, but the most likely place where they did meet up was that uh, was the bistro, the French bistro in uh, Montmartre. Is that right? Um, where all the German, all the Russian uh, emigres used to gather, but you know the Cossacks and the types, and they'd discuss things. And that's where George, based in Belgium, was selling uh, the clothing and snow gear and things. That was his one of his main bases. All the Russian emigres in in Paris, fifty thousand. But he actually went around Europe selling this gear as he was studying. He had an extra job, you know. And it seems to me as though Dulles was only, I think, two hours away by car from from where he was in Belgium. I, I forget. Uh, Lyon, uh, Liege, what's the name? What's the town in Belgium? It's just near the border, French border. Anyway, that's where he did his study. And he did his PhD on uh, uh, oil in US oil or something in South America, which is a very strange topic as well. But then 1938, George emigrated from there, went to America just before the war and got a job in uh, Standard Oil subsidiary, you know, uh, Humble Oil. That's where he and Alan were working together, basically. That's mentioned in the Warren report, but not not too clearly because um, George was getting a bit forgetful for the Warren report then, confusing a few dates and things, you know. But basically, that that role that they had of selling oil to the Vichy French 
was it was mentioned i think it was mentioned in the warren report but anyway the british stepped in to stop it and george was in a precarious position to embarrass standard oil because he would if he's if they found out that his father was then living in nazi germany it would have gone against them in any legal decision he could have been called a, well he was called a spy you know he was in mexico and apprehended there and he was labeled a, a spy you know working working for the nazis but for the as far as the legal case that proceeded about this oil selling oil to the Vichy french and the british stopped it they had to get george out of the country so he could not be a witness so he could not embarrass standard oil and what i'm saying is he didn't go far in the warren report he said he went to louisiana to do a bit of oil work you know he he told them that oil was in his blood and well i'm sure he may have gone there for two or three weeks to learn how to pull uh pipes stems from the you know the oil oil drilling rigs i actually did that when i was a student as i put in a footnote you know same the same thing with the same company can you believe it my goodness i did same sort of work in the same austral united geophysical voice <laughs> anyway i th- what i'm saying is they had to get george out of the country so he couldn't be a witness and um what i'm saying is he he stayed in the same company humble because they were they were uh the subsidiary company that did the exploration in Netherlands New Guinea just before World War II and the timing of his arrival happened there were two main wells drug selly 1 selly 2 and he arrived just before selly 2 and i think he was probably responsible for discovery of selly 2 oil which was the biggest oil discovery in southeast asia and still holds the record 26000 barrels a day and it's reported in military history and but all very quietly you know it's, people don't read military history books huh? but if you wanted to go to the trouble it's still reported there and um it was the richest oil no sulfur and they realized general douglas macarthur was going to use that in 1943 when he was going through new guinea he needed that oil to move on to japan so but suddenly this oil disappeared and the whole oil oil field just disappeared and it didn't surface in the 1950s 60s and only when suharto was in control again did it mysteriously reappear and it was then described as the richest you know, but it's the same exactly the same level of production or output as was predicted in the military history books you know 23000 barrels a day so that's amazing really yeah what so what uh, what evidence i remember this part in the book and maybe it's explained more clearly there but how is it that you can uh, surmise that demorenshilt was the person who likely dismayed the discovery yeah well that's there was two ways yeah that's i as i say in the book there's no documentary evidence for that but there's i've got i've listed five pieces of evidence circumstantial evidence and one is they got $10,000 bonus from the head of humble oil when he got back that's what he used to study but there's but there's five pieces of i think four or five pieces of evidence there but what i really need is a bit of a sliver of paper where i can take a photograph of it proving he was there <laughs> but i don't have that but the rest of it is circumstantial yes um and the other th- thing that followed up was happened way 
you know, year, decades in the future from that point was when Damore and Shields' wife, who, who was a Russian emigre from after the Russian Revolution, the family fled and the family went to, well, part of the family came to Australia and she went to America and got married, then remarried, and she ended up married, marrying Damore and Shields. She was a fashion designer, a Russian fashion designer, travelling the world. And her nephew, half-nephew, whatever you could call him, this fellow called Michael Fomenko, who was a Russian, uh, well, he was phenomenal. He was like, he was born at the other end of the lake where, where uh, Johnny Wiesemuller was born. So they're physically extremely fit human beings, you know. And he was going to be, he was a student in Sydney. The, the, Tars, the Tarzan, the Tarzan, the Tarzan actor, the, right? Yeah, people are, are yes, gonna, most people yes. are going to know that. But Yes, it's amazing because everybody in North Queensland for years and years heard about Tarzan running around in the jungle, but nobody realised he was sort of Russian nobility, you know. I thought he was just a crazy man. And he was given, he was pulled, he was going to go up to New Guinea a second time in just when the Warren Commission was starting, 64, and uh, the detective here who put him into the mental asylum here was linked with with CIA, uh, MI6, whatever. You know, he's a notorious detective here. He, was, uh, he should have been put in a pot of boiling oil a long time ago, really. He was so bad. He had just a local reputation. Huh? But he was the man who put him into the mental hospital where he received electroconvulsive therapy. Now, I've spoken with it. I didn't include this in the book, but I, there was a local doctor here who inspected, who did a medical inspection of George of uh, Michael Fomenko, and he said there was evidence that he'd been given a frontal lobotomy as well, and, but he, he was unwilling to put his name to for me to include his name in the book, et cetera, et cetera, so I didn't mention that. But, I mean, they must have done a good job on on Michael Franco, and that's why he ran around the bush for 50 years, you know. I met him. He, he, he When he's 80, what was he, 84 or something, he decided to walk down to Sydney, walk like 2,000-plus kilometres, you know. He got halfway and his knee gave out, and I met him in the old people's home that was looking after him. Amazing individual, you know. Even the nurses said he's the fittest individual they've seen. He's sitting in his wheelchair doing doing. Uh, lifting weights, you know, that's how amazing it was. And I've I've spoken with his sister, who's a, two years older than he is, who's, who's an extraordinary individual as well. And uh, she was so pleased that I was able to speak with him because he didn't, he, Michael, Michael blamed the family for what happened, but he doesn't know the big picture. He doesn't know why he was... What happened? Because it was to stop him going back from to Indonesia again. Because had right, he gone I, back, I just why was why was it so radioactive? Uh, his yes. potential visit back to New to, New, because, to uh, New Guinea. Because had he gone back and discovered this, well, what I'm saying, where George went there to find the oil, that's the link between the family. See, if if he'd made that public at that time, sixty four, this was after the Dutch were kicked out in 1962, 63, but before Suharto came in in 65, 66, crucial period when they had to keep this oil discovery very, very quiet. This is when Nishijima's friend, his former boss, Admiral Maeda, volunteered 
to Sukarno or volunteered to the PKI boss, ADIP, because he knew him during the war. He said, look, uh, Admiral Maeda was the head Japanese man in, who was the boss of Nishijima during the war. And Maeda, Maeda was an admiral in the war, but afterwards, in the post-war, he was a businessman and he still knew his Indonesian friends. So he told the head of the Communist Party, Sukarno gave the head of the Communist Party the very area where this oil was, for goodness sake, but he didn't know the oil was there. So it ran a terrible risk for Standard Oil that someone would discover this oil that they've been keeping quiet, keeping quiet since 1941 and didn't service till 72. So Admiral Maeda volunteered to sit on this oil until the right time, which was two or three years when Suharto came in. And afterwards, 72, it, it became productive and the biggest oil well. That's why Nishijima got so angry when I found out, I had evidence there that Maeda had done what he'd done. And this was linked with, with Michael Rockefeller, I mean, with, with uh, Michael Fomenko and George Dvorenshield. It's, it sort of ties up, but it's, you know, it's just complicated. That's all. Sorry. <laughs> But um, no, that that makes that makes more sense. Um, do you think that Fomenko would have had some inkling about the oil, or that the that oil. would have been motive? Yeah, well, that, I that asked would have that. Been, very... That would have been motivating him in some way, like if yes, if, if yes, I think it did motivate him. There. Yes, he when he first went up, Pat, he made a canoe out of a, a log of a tree. Would you believe? And. A place called Deral. I had some land up there. <laughs> he paddled this canoe up to New Guinea, and for three months walked around by himself before he was arrested by the Dutch in the late fifties. Now I spoke with a Dutch man who arrested him and put him under house arrest in his house, and he told me he was the, the most fit human individual he'd ever seen in his life. You know, this is this is <laughs> this is this is. Uh, uh, what's his name? Fomenko, huh? Michael Fomenko. He must have been an incredibly fit. He was going to be jo going to the Olympic Games, apparently, and uh, as a decathlon the athlete, but uh, he wasn't interested. He just wanted to run bush after that. But uh, that's it is strong evidence, yes, and it's it points in that direction. But I have to agree. There's no hard and fast. There's no there's no photographic documentary evidence that. George did it, but I've got one or two things yet to explore, which I'd like to do if I come over to Philadelphia. Well, I've got a son in Philly. I was going to visit him in April this year, and I was hoping to check up on one or two things which would answer that question that you put to me and finalise that once and for all, if I could. But as it is, as it stands now, it's highly circumstantial, I agree. But the evidence seems to weigh in my favour, I think, so that's why I included it. And uh, it's too. I think important. so too. I think so too. When you add what happens to him, which seems so uh, inexplicable, yes, without yeah. a, a deeper explanation, the way that they put him in jail and yes. kind of made him yeah. mentally incompetent yes, by absolutely. You know, yeah. medical procedures. Yeah. In this, the, the aftermath of World War Two, you have the U.S. who is presiding over ostensibly decolonization but it's 
they're sort of managing, I would argue more that they're managing a transition to neocolonialism. Although some people like Kennedy have want something different. They actually seem to want some genuine decolonization. And in throughout the fifties, with Alan Dulles as the director of the CIA and Eisenhower, he comes to office really on a wave of oil money. And John Foster Dulles is his secretary of state, Standard Oil, or, um, you know, Sullivan and Cromwell lawyer, and Alan Dulles, similar. Um, and they have these covert operations that really benefit corporate America, uh, like in Iran, 1953. And Sukarno is... A big uh, something that is on Alan Dulles's mind. So, what is what is Alan Dulles doing in the 1950s under Eisenhower uh, to deal with this issue of the the most resource rich place in the world, Indonesia? Just about what happens in the 1950s with Dulles while he's really at the height of his power? Uh, people tend to forget the colonial days when when Indonesia, Netherlands, East Indies, was described as the world's richest colony. I mean, more that's George Kahin described it as such. But it, it, if we say it's bigger than India or the, even the same size as India, whatever, the same level of profit, they had an extra 100 years of colonial exploitation. That's why I think George said it was more than India. So that's the attraction for Dulles. It was the world's largest colony. You know, they'd only been independent officially since 1949. And, of course, straight away, Standard Oil wants to get access to the... They've been trying since before World War One. you know. So they're interested in Indonesia from, from the word go. And when the Cold War begins and Sukarno hosts, was it, two-thirds of the world's population, representatives thereof, in Bandung Conference in 1955... Uh, that was sort of like signing his death warrant, really. But um, as far as Alan Dulles' interest in Sukarno, I think the assassination, attempted assassination, started from that time. None of them worked. I think seven seven attempts were on Sukarno were, were tried, but none of them worked out. So Dulles was, at the time, uh, looking at ways of, of gaining influence and dealing with this man, Sukarno, who was uh, so popular, it was difficult to convince anybody that he should be replaced. But uh, what Dulles came across to gain control, he really decided uh, nothing could be done without uh, military force. And the trouble in Indonesia was that Sukarno himself had split up after Nasution's attempt in '52, he split up the army into uh, separate groups. You know, half a dozen separate groups in different parts of the island. So they were a disparate group with no central command, really. Even though there was Jakarta Central Command, they didn't have much influence. Nasution was there. Yeah? So step one was to unify the army under a central command. And Dulles's main concern was that the PKI, the Communist Party of Indonesia, were gaining influence after after the elections in 55, where they were the fourth largest, they just kept growing because they were uh, putting out their uh, appeal to all these landless rice farmers 
millions and millions of them who had been like that since 19, sorry, 1820s, you know. I mean, I remember reading about Deponegoro in, in the Javanese war against the Dutch. It was the same problem then. Too many landless rice farmers supported Deponegoro and they nearly defeated the Dutch. So move forward to 1960s, <laughs> it's still the same problem. And that's why the PKI were gaining influence. And had there been an election, they would have. But the other question I throw into this book here is the description of the PKI as Indonesian Communist Party as communist needs to be needs to be investigated a little bit more closely because the the head of the British uh, the desk in the Foreign Office in London wrote a wrote an, an, a very interesting article, well report, questioning whether this is the correct description for the communists because they weren't communists. He said. <laughs> they were Javanese uh, imperialists, Javanese radicals, whatever, but they didn't follow the normal communist you know, pattern of European communism. You know, for, and the biggest uh, point that got people angry or Javanese angry was that they didn't believe in God. Well, yes, they did. <laughs> I did change the rules. You know? They celebrated Ramadan in the PKI headquarters, for goodness sake. You know? So it's, it wasn't really publicised enough, I suppose. But uh, I would tend to think that, uh, what's his name, Derek, uh, Derek, uh, the the British officer in the in the Foreign Office, oh, I forget his surname. Anyway, his assessment of the PKI was, uh, needs to be looked at more closely and, and, the, and the communist precepts that were put forward by Aiden, but I, it goes down that yeah, they, they'd be amongst the uh, communist rulers in the world, so it would have been a communist influence. So to that extent, yeah, Dali's assessment would probably hold, hold water, even though the, the Communist Party itself was composed of 20 million rice farmers who knew nothing about politics. You know? and they're the ones who suffered when the killing started in 65, 66. They didn't know what was happening. You know, They're not political. They don't know what had happened in Jakarta. But yet they got accused of killing six generals. It's just nonsense. You know? For Dulles's purposes, for Cold War purposes, they're useful as a way to yeah. demonize Sukarno yes. and to raise the alarm about this threat in yeah. Indonesia. Furthermore, if they were given that land in Western New Guinea, yes. Then the resource wealth, because Sukarno had shown had already started to nationalize Dutch and other even American yes. business interests, and Kennedy, Kennedy in particular, later even facilitates some of this. And so they would have, if Sukarno had been able to proceed on a nationalist sort of progressive reformist path, taking in the PKI's constituency into account and trying to you know, give them a sort of material basis to exist, that would have been threatening to Freeport and to mm. Standard Oil, right? I mean... I did calculate the value of, had that oil been discovered, the one that Nishijima and Maeda worked together to keep quiet, had that been utilised by the PKI, it would have been between $1 and $2 million a day, I think. It would have changed history. That's why that's what happened to yeah, the Tarzan. That's why Tarzan became Tarzan. 
was it would have changed history for sure. Yeah. And also it would have brought out a link between Dulles in the Warren Commission, it would have brought out a link between Dulles and the Morinshield, who was the key witness. I mean, whoa, they, they would have thrown Dulles out of out of the Warren Commission immediately. Mm. He's not there shouldn't be, shouldn't have been a link. Right. Mm. Oh, I mean it was his his inclusion on that is beyond absurd really yeah. him being on the Warren Commission. Yeah, yeah. And I like that you add that that Oswald was introduced to that that DeMorenshield hands off sort of hands it's depicted this way is that he hands off Oswald to the pains yes, yeah. at a standard oil party yes. basically, right? <laughs> I mean this it, it's that part's perfect. Half of them work at Lockheed. I mean <laughs> Yeah, the helicopter. That part's wild. Yeah, Yeah. amazing. Right. It's so the the big covert operation under Dulles, which is depicted as a failure, was really this rebellion was really about unifying the military. Yes, and and creating martial law. Yes, stopping elections for the PKI, but also providing a very strong organized body to oppose the PKI. Yeah? The army was the best organised group. They became the counterfoil for the PKI. And they had more power. I mean, the quotation that there sums all that up is from the US military attaché, I think it was, and the US embassy in Jakarta. I mean, Sukarno's cabinet, he said, is like a, is like a doll. We can do anything we want with this cabinet. At the same time, they're saying, oh, Indonesia's about to be taken over by communists. Etc. Etc. You know all this, uh, and uh, the the secret the secret communication is saying we we're in control. Yeah? We're in control. The army the army and and can basically do what they want in Indonesia. They did arrest PKI leaders whenever they wanted, but they were Sukarno intervened and got them out. You know things like that. But the PKI, as soon as that Central Army Command was formed, that's that's when the road to eventual regime change was on the way. But he needed the army also to kick the Dutch out of New Guinea. So that would be the next step. Some people have said, why would Dulles be involved in helping rebels in a in an outer islands re- revolution like that revolt if if he didn't want them to win? I mean that I mean that's uh, somebody in, in Jakarta asked that and I was like, wow, come on. That's basic, you know. That's basic military strategy, you know. If you you attack here, but you're not, the main attacks over here, but you give they, they attack here and they bring the forces over, then you've got a weaker, you know. <laughs> it, they just yeah, they just don't understand how things were working. He he provided assistance, and George Cahin wrote that amazing book, um, you know, uh, Subversion as Foreign Policy, I think it was called, with Audrey. But Audrey did came in just at the very end. She married George towards the end of all his research and writing, and she's disagreed with me when I said that uh, the person who was organising the main political power or force behind the 1958 rebellion in America was not John Foster Dulles, whom they claim it was. I'm saying it was Alan Dulles, you know, and and she tended to disagree with me on that and... uh, but I asked her to write a foreword for um, for the book, and I got uh, Anderson Ben Anderson to ask her, and he he said she refused because 
in his words, he said, she thinks I'm stepping on her patch. And because I'm I'm putting forward Alan rather than John Foster as the main the main figure behind the 1958 rebellion, huh? you can see it's as clear as but day. That makes it, he's a secretary. He's the secretary of state, whereas Dulles is Alan Dulles is running covert operations, and he did have Prouty involved. And you talked that you either yeah. read Prouty or interviewed no, him. I, I, I think right. You I talked him? with well communicated with him for two years. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, and he wrote about he wrote about the Indonesian article. Yeah. He, yeah. In one of his one of his articles that I think was in one of those girly magazines back in the seventies, yeah. which is just why Proudy is such an interesting character that he couldn't get published anywhere yeah. except for like gallery gallery magazine, maybe. So you'd have like the nude women, and then this article about yeah. foreign policy that you couldn't read anywhere else. Yeah. And he, but that was when you if. If that was if Proudy's talking about getting these resources for special operations, that's the CIA's territory. Yeah, that wouldn't yeah. be. I mean, am I missing something? What's the argument for it being John Foster Dulles's? Well, he, theoretically, he was in a higher position than CIA. Okay, fair enough. He's responsible to that extent, but he didn't do. He didn't do it. You can read through all the records. Alan is tricking his brother. You know. It, the, the brotherly yeah. relation, sibling relation, whatever, is, wasn't the same as John uh, Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. They're, they're close, you know. But these two were rivals. They've been rivals since boyhood when Alan had a club foot and he was always trying to prove to his older brother that he's as good as his older brother, elder brother, or better, you know. And he always wanted to become Secretary of State and, whoa, Alan, Alan's put out when... John Foster becomes Secretary of State instead, you know. And and when when John Foster's dying and Alan said, look, can you put me in as Secretary of State now? He said, not on your Nelly, mate. I'm not going to do that. And he really went angry. Then in that period that followed, uh, Fletcher Prouty said it was, that's when, the, that's the period you can call murder. The CIA was just running rampant. The murder in corporate, he said, that's, that's the name you could they should be renamed Murder and Corporate, not CIA. Yeah? That's how bad it got. After after John Foster passed away and those few years later, wow, that's a really heavy indictment. Yeah? Right. Mm. And, and the other thing to think about that I think supports your thesis that it was really not intended to overthrow the government is that it was already a large operation, but for it to have had any chance of acquiring the momentum to overthrow Sukarno, it would have had to have been bigger by orders of magnitude. It, it seems like like it couldn't have succeeded oh, on the way that it was presented to have succeeded and then failed as yeah. this rebellion supported bot on the outer islands. Yeah. The person who was a key observer was the Philippine um, uh, uh, what's her name uh, Aquino or Aquino, uh, Aquino yeah. yes I was kept getting put off because she became president but the other Aquino who was killed at the airport when he returned he was he was an observer he looked at both sides the rebels and Jakarta and then reported back and said there's no way these people are going to be successful you know what's going on What's really happening, you know? But people don't want to think about that. What 
what's the real implication of what of he what he's saying is that it's it's a setup. Mm. Something there's another agenda. Yeah, and it's the 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 Alan Pope thing, which again it's interesting that that you talk about him because I've heard a lot of interviews with Proudy and he also spoke about that in the same breath as with um Pope. Pope Gary Powers, yes, and Powers, yeah. was saying that why does he have all this identification and everything else yeah. on him? Yeah. Yeah. He's like a one man. It's like he's the he's a one man office yeah. or something. He's yeah. it's like he's carrying a filing 30, cabinet. With thirty him. documents in his pocket. Thirty, not one. <laughs> Ridiculous. That's like a World War Two game, you know. But you ever read that story about the the man, the man who never was? He was he was a dead British soldier loaded up with documents rolled onto the beach like it, it died or survived, and the Germans got the documents and they thought D-Day landing was going to be somewhere else. It's the same as that, you know, the same World War II tricks. You know? Dully's was up to World War II tricks still. You know? He's, I mean, they're tricky. I interviewed the, the lawyer, you know, and he brought along to the, to the courtroom this guy with the ancient rifle. He said he shot down the B-26 with this pea shooter. I mean, come on. <laughs> And the outcome of all yeah, that. Yeah, that part is also interesting. Yeah. That it wasn't, it was apparently one guy, like a, a farmer or something, or with a rifle, like a. Yeah, he was a soldier, but he had such a, you know, he was one bullet. I mean, come on, you know. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I have heard that various Indonesian pilots have claimed they were in the Mustang that shot the plane down. It's all nonsense. They, they thought this up 15 years later to make, you know, Good story for themselves. They had a bit of fame, but it wasn't didn't happen like that. But the outcome was that uh, Chinese from national uh, Taiwan, Formosa, were blamed for funding this rebellion rather than directly CIA. You know? And then that Chinese blame spread over to right wing, left wing Chinese. They didn't differentiate, and that was ended up depriving the PKI of a lot of their funding. So I think that could have been one of the outcomes of of this of the documents in his pocket, you know. Right. It was anti PKI after all. Right, because he was Alan Pope was also in the civil air transport and that was the a, a sort of joint KMT uh CIA thing. It becomes yeah. even more yeah. it becomes more later, yeah. later under Air America, but that goes back to the Flying Tigers. Yeah. Which was Claire Chenot's right. outfit in World War II. Dean Rusk. Dean Rusk. Yeah, that's where Dean Rusk was in the war. Mm-hmm. Right, and then it, late years <laughs> later, years later, it's a former, I believe, in the Iran Contra case. It was another Air America veteran named Eugene Hassenfuss, and he also falls out of the sky uh, again and causes a big embarrassment. Although this one, I don't think was, I don't think this one was on purpose. Uh, in that case, I think that they actually legitimately shot them down. And, but that's, those are those, the three powers, Hassenfuss and Pope are the three, you know, maroon plane crash guys who spoil U S foreign policy. Although in this case, it seems (laughs) probably to have moved Dulles's plan forward. Um, that's worth an article, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Those three, the three sad clowns. Um, so at the end, so at the end of fifty eight, fifty nine. Uh, wow, things had changed a lot because then 
you had Central Army Command in Jakarta and Nasution in control, and that's when Suharto was brought in. He was working in that Central Army Command. He was brought to Jakarta, which is a very interesting time. Things changed as soon as the as soon as the Central Army Command was created. Um, that's when the anti-Dutch rhetoric began in earnest, and and they follow through. Then that's when the that's when the uh, U.S. election was heating up as well. That's when Dulles started helping Kennedy, not 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 the Republican candidate, you know, giving him information about Cuba and stuff like that. I mean, what an extraordinary thing to do! Yeah. Working ahead, I, I see that working ahead, years working ahead, uh, in, on the part of Dulles, that is. Sukarno in Indonesia, I am struck by the continuity of thinkers uh, who keep hitting on the same aspirations for world peace. I think of Henry Wallace, who tried to stand up to the nascent U.S. empire with his counter uh, proposal to the American century. He wanted the century of the common man. History swept him aside. Sukarno, of course, took up the mantle of the third world and the non-aligned movement and wanted for formerly colonized countries to be able to pursue their own paths uh, for development and human progress. And of course, Sukarno is swept aside as well by the imperialist forces that prevailed. JFK, I believe, wanted to end the Cold War. The, the, I think the history is clear on that. And he wanted to essentially pick up the mantle of Henry Wallace, I believe, though you, you couldn't quite say it in the same terms, thanks to the Cold War, this is what he wanted to do. And when he was shot, RFK sent an emissary to Moscow to tell the Soviets that though his brother was dead and the quest for peace wasn't going to be possible under LBJ because he was too close to big business and such, once he got back into the White House, he would resume his brother's work. But of course, RFK was killed before that could happen. In the 1970s, in the wake of the oil crises and other economic turmoil of the 1970s, you had the new international uh, economic order movement, right, which was uh, in the third world, and they wanted to essentially come up with a, a world that would be more just and equitable for formerly colonized countries who are overwhelmingly producers of raw materials and such. Uh, this failed. And the Washington Consensus was instead established, which uh, created neoliberal dominance over the global political economy with the, the U.S. dollar at the center, uh, which the U.S. could produce in infinite amounts if it wanted. They had total control over this. This is an amazing power that the U.S. had, backed by not even gold anymore. Um, Gorbachev in the early 90s, uh, at, right at the fall of the Soviet Union, was also calling for things like uh, massive debt cancellations for the third world. He wanted to move Russia in a more socialist, social democratic direction, reform the economy that way. 
but the collapse of the oil price, uh, the collapse of the oil prices, and the chaos that this caused, and other subversive activities of the West in the Soviet bloc, especially, this all hastened the demise of the Soviet Union, and gave rise to the unipolar moment that we've been living in for the last thirty years. Uh, but we see pushback against this from the BRICS, with China in the lead. Russia putting up some military resistance to U.S. imperialism. And you have more and more people waking up to the fact that a multipolar world is right around the corner. It's partially already here. And uh, it, the way that events play out in the next couple of years are going to be very decisive. I think we're either headed towards multipolarity or nuclear war uh, unless the U.S. has some... Uh, magical rabbit that it can pull out of its hat here to somehow restore U.S. Uh, global dominance, I, I think this is where we're headed. So with that in mind, let's all take a moment to honor everyone who has struggled and sacrificed over the years in order to keep chasing the lines.